I'm Ruxandra Guidi, host of The Catch, a podcast from Foreign Policy and the Walton Family Foundation about the seafood we eat and the impact it can have on our world. This season, we'll hear how Norway is handling cod's changing migration patterns and what it says about fisheries in other parts of the world. Season three of The Catch is out now. I don't, I don't like the Democratic Party, and I don't like the Republican Party. I think they mm-hmm. both screwed things up mm-hmm. for years. Carla Pike is a former flight attendant living in Las Vegas. Like a lot of people in Nevada, Carla still hasn't made up her mind about who she's voting for in next month's midterms. And she's feeling a little disconnected from the whole thing. In, in terms of inflation, um, is there a party you trust more on that issue and on the economy? I hate to admit it because I didn't care for them before, but the Republic, things were cheaper when the Repu- Republicans were in office, but I don't think they're the perfect fit either. Yeah. And any independent party, they don't stand a chance. Yes. It, it seems like whoever's got the most money is the one that's going to win. <laughs> Hannah Knowles is a campaign's reporter for The Post. She was in Nevada talking to people just like Carla to understand what's at stake in the state, where every race seems to be neck and neck, and neither party can hold a steady lead. Operatives on both sides have always known it was going to be really close, and um, Republicans um, hope they can flip the Senate seat there as well as seats up and down the ballot. They're eyeing the governor's race, a number of congressional seats as well that are going to be close. So I and everyone else in the political universe are watching the Nevada Senate race um, because the battle for control of that chamber, which is evenly divided right now, could very well come down to Nevada. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. It's Wednesday, October 12th. I'm Arjun Singh. I've been sitting in for Martine Powers and Alahe Zadi while they're working on some projects. They'll be back soon. Today, we're exploring how control of the Senate could come down to Nevada. For now, things are too close to call. So the question is, how are Republicans or Democrats going to turn this purple state red or blue? Nevada's races are all extremely competitive and they're um, extremely high stakes, um, in part because you have this Senate race um, that is absolutely central to Republicans' hopes of flipping that chamber. You know, these races could tell us something about where Nevada is going politically. It's always been seen as the state where both parties have a good shot, but some Democrats say this is a tough year for us, given what's happening with the economy, given what happened with COVID. You know, if we can pull it off this year, then we think that Democrats should be really confident about Nevada for years to come. On the other hand, um, Republicans say, you know, if we can chip away at Democrats' lead with Latino voters here, that could affect elections in Nevada for years to come. Correct me if I'm wrong, but in previous election cycles, Nevada didn't seem to have such an influential role in what was going to happen. Why is it that Nevada now seems to be the spot that both parties really see as the key to either taking back the Senate or their success in the midterms? So there's this perception of Nevada sometimes as a blue state, and that's because Democratic presidential candidates have done well in Nevada in recent years. The Senate has gone Democrats' way in recent years in Nevada. 
Um, but at the end of the day, it, it is still a very purple state. Um, and again, you know, everyone knew it's going to come down to a couple points probably um, in a lot of these races. At the same time, there's a pretty limited map of places where, you know, Republicans felt like they could flip seats in the Senate as they're trying to regain control in that chamber. And so as that map has kind of narrowed over time, as we see Republican candidates in some other races like Arizona, even Georgia has become, you know, a bit tougher in recent days, given some of the news about um, Herschel Walker's campaign. He's facing allegations that he paid for um, an ex-girlfriend's abortion, even though he's very anti-abortion. And so, um, you know, you really see everyone looking to Nevada as the number one chance for Republicans to flip that seat they need. Yeah, tell me more about the Senate race that's there, because if Republicans feel like their chances are dimming in other states, who is this candidate that they have put up in Nevada that they feel optimistic about, and who is he running against? So Republicans have nominated Adam Laxalt, who's a former attorney general in the state. Um, He also chaired Donald Trump's 2020 campaign in Nevada and, and very much was involved in Trump's efforts to overturn the election results. And I've been attacked viciously by the sitting attorney general and other people and, and for being and somehow, um, you know, attacking our system. And last time I checked, I served both in the Navy and in Iraq and was a top law enforcement officer. All I want to do is what you want. I want to put a spotlight on this system because the bottom line is there is fraud. I don't know how wide scale it is. You know, I think Republicans see Laxalt as, you know, a top recruit. He's this guy who, um, you know, in the words of one um, Republican strategist I talked to, has unified kind of the McConnell clan and the Trump clan. Um, and, you know, some of his top strategists are, you know, allies of Senator Mitch McConnell. And yet he also really appeals to kind of the the Trump base of the GOP. So on the Democratic side, you have um, Senator Catherine Cortez Masto, who was elected in 2016 in what was also a very close race. And um, she's the first Latina elected to the Senate. She has been talking about Democrats' efforts to um, lower prescription drug prices, you know, trying to kind of counter Republicans' economic message there. She's also very much been talking about abortion and, and feels that that is a winning issue for Democrats, especially in a state like Nevada, where they actually, by popular vote, um, protected the right to abortion access uh, many years ago. It's the most basic freedom a person can have, the ability to make decisions about their own body. But in one fell swoop, the Supreme Court stripped women of that right, setting our country back 50 years. And now Mitch McConnell says he might go further, banning abortion nationwide, including here in Nevada. When you were out in Nevada and talking to voters, did it seem like one candidate's message was resonating more with people than another person's? It's just so interesting to me that you have these two candidates that seem completely different, and yet both parties see this opportunity in this state. Why is that? It's a toss-up state, you know, in part because it's, it's just always been a toss-up state. This is, this is routine for Nevada. Um, Biden won by two percentage points in 2020. Um, so again, you know, that's just kind of the nature of um, the state. Um, it's very divided, you know, on both sides. There are some people who feel like Democrats have contributed to this um, tough economy we're in, that they passed um, spending packages that um, drove up inflation. Um, So you saw Republican arguments, you know, very much resonating with voters um, of all backgrounds. 
At the same time, I talked to voters who, you know, Democrats' economic message is resonating with them as well. And they hear the arguments that, you know, we needed restrictions to protect people from COVID. You know, we needed to be cautious. We saved the lives of your family members when COVID came and don't necessarily blame them for the economic pain that followed. Yeah, I want to hear more a little bit about these voters and the ways that these candidates were interacting with them. Where did you go exactly in Nevada? Were you in Las Vegas for the most part? Yeah, I was in Las Vegas, um, which is very much at the center of the economic pain that Nevadans have been feeling. And, you know, this is a state that's very reliant on the tourism industry. It was shuttered when COVID hit. You know, so many people lost their jobs, including at the Culinary Workers Union, which is this very large and influential union that um, is part of Democrats' get-out-the-vote operation. Even in these groups and communities that traditionally have turned out for Democrats and been a key part of their coalition in Nevada, you know, they they are hurting from what's going on with the economy. And um, Republicans think that will help them make inroads. And Democrats know that, you know, we need to work really hard and to get our counter-message out. Nevada is such a service sector-based economy, and I would love to hear more about the Culinary Workers Union and the people that you spoke to from there. So what were the problems that they saw within their own economy that they felt either need to be fixed or aren't being addressed? The Culinary Workers Union is this huge force in Nevada politics. They are a group of 60,000 workers um, in Las Vegas and, and Reno, They're working on the strip, they're working in the casinos, and so they are on the front lines of what is going on with the economy. And, you know, they really felt those economic shocks from the the coronavirus pandemic. Broad question, yeah, how are you guys feeling about, um, you know, where Democrats stand as we're a month out from Election Day? I know it's just always close in Nevada. Well, it's going to be extremely close in Nevada. It's going to be... (laughs) I talked to Ted Papageorge, who is a leader with... Um, the Culinary Workers Union. And he's very frank about, you know, we know that people are feeling economic pain and, and we need to be out at the doors, you know, saying, here's our solution, you know, here's how we can help you. And, you know, working class voters are hurting. They're hurting because of the price of gas, the price of housing. Um, and that means that folks are concerned. Mm-hmm. And that's real out there on the doors. And it's really, for us, there's a lot of big issues out there, but that's one of the biggest ones that people bring up when mm-hmm. we're talking to our members and working-class voters. Yeah. I went out with the Culinary Workers Union um, to do a little bit of canvassing with them. They came across some supporters of Cortez Masso and, and the governor who they were out to um, support. Oh, okay. So, you oh, know. Yeah. He's got my vote. I like him. Wow. Yeah. You see? <laughs> I, got, I voted I got, for him last time, too. I got that for you, madam. But they didn't um, really win any new converts. And by far, kind of the most um, response they would get was when they talked about this petition to um, control rent prices. You know, we, we're doing a campaign now to keep the low, uh, low rent. We have a neighbor stability because everything is going up. And if we don't watch it, it's going to become like California. Yeah, it's disgusting. Can we do something together? Uh, it's a, just a petition. Sure. Put your name and everything. Ah, let's do it. 
So you could just see there, um, you know, that this was top of mind for everyone. And, you know, they would tell people, you know, we don't want Nevada to become another California, you know, help us keep the costs down. And that got a real response from people. I'm in a three-bedroom house and I'm paying 1050 right now. Oh, stay yeah. Where yeah, you are. that's what I'm saying. Stay where you are because it's, oh, not, yeah. it's not cool anymore. It's, oh, no. it's going up everywhere. Because people from California are moving in. Exactly. And they're used to paying that rent. That's what I was telling your dollar. They want to create, recreate California here. That's not cool. Yeah. We don't want that. The other big group that you do hear about in Nevada, and this isn't necessarily an organized group, but are Latino voters. I know in previous election cycles, I had heard about the growing strength of Latino voters as a block in Nevada. Can you tell me how Latino voters are a part of the strategy of both Cortez Masto and Laxalt and how each are trying to appeal to them? So we saw this interesting trend in 2020 um, where Latino voters who traditionally have been very much with the Democratic Party shifted a bit toward um, the GOP and, and voted for Donald Trump in greater numbers. There's a lot of people who think that this could continue. Um, Republicans argue that their economic message really resonates with Latino voters, many of whom are working class. Um, they feel like there is some alignment on um, cultural issues as well. And they point to polling in Nevada showing Democrats' lead with um, Hispanic voters um, seemingly narrowing since, um, you know, 2020 and past years. Um, first of all, can you spell out your name for me? C-R-I-S. C-R-I-S? C-R-I-S? Two Chris Mersh. Yeah, <laughs> got it, Chris. got it. My name is Chris Mersh. Okay, got it. So I'm a Latino, you can see in my accent. Mm-hmm. I came through this country legally. And I pay a lot of lawyers. I contribute to this country. I work hard. I pay my taxes. I had to go through a hard process. And I don't agree the way the open borders are right now. Uh, and when did you come to the U.S.? Uh, eight years ago. Eight years ago. Okay. And then was a hard path to me become a legal immigrant. And I just don't agree uh, the way the borders are open. And I, I left a third world country trying to find a better economy and safety. What country were you coming Brazil. from? Brazil. Brazil, okay. So there are real reasons for Republicans to be hopeful. At the same time, I talk to a lot of Democrats who feel like every state is different. And, you know, what you see happening in, like, South Texas with Latino voters isn't necessarily what's happening in Nevada with Latino voters. And if we put in the work, we can really um, keep a hold on um, Latino voters. And so they do have this um, very formidable infrastructure on the ground that they built over the years. Some people call it the Reed machine, which is a reference to um, the late Senate Majority Leader Harry Reed. Um, and, you know, that is a great um, tool for them as they're trying to um, convince voters to, to turn out. Can you tell me more about the Reed machine? What is it exactly? The, the Reed machine is made up of all these groups that work to turn out voters for Democrats. Um, and they've been a big part of their success with people of color, with working class voters of color. A big part of that is the Culinary Workers Union. So the Reed machine is named for Harry Reed, who was a long-serving senator from Nevada, um, just absolute giant of Democratic politics. He passed away last year. Um, and I think a lot of people wondered, Will the the Reed machine, this this Democratic turnout operation that he kind of helped create, um, will it keep humming along as successfully um, in his absence? And when you talk to organizers with the Reed machine, they say, you know, it's very much carrying out 
what it's always carried out. The Culinary Workers Union says it's doing its biggest election year effort ever this year. It's this very formidable line of defense that the Democrats have as Republicans hope to flip these seats up and down the ballot. After the break, how Democrats in Nevada are keeping their distance from the National Party and the president. We'll be right back. In-laws, love them or hate them, you're pretty much stuck with them. And when you're a ruler in the Middle Ages, that can be a serious problem. It might even land you dead. I'm Dan Jones, and on season four of This Is History, I'm telling the story of England's weirdest king, Henry III. He's in way over his head, and he's surrounded by bloodthirsty relatives with their eyes on his throne. To listen, search This Is History and follow wherever you get your podcasts. So what exactly is the biggest issue for these voters then? The economy is sounds like a very obvious one, but is that too broad? I mean, is it inflation? Is it jobs or housing prices? I think everyone acknowledges that economic concerns are top of mind. You see that, you know, in polling, you see that especially in Nevada again, where um, they are just especially vulnerable to, you know, headwinds in the economy. Um, at the same time, Democrats feel like, Abortion is an issue that um, will matter to many voters and can turn out their base. Also with um, Hispanic voters, they point to polling showing that a majority of Hispanic voters do favor access to abortion, you know, despite some perceptions people have that they are more religious and maybe more opposed to it. And so th there's definitely good reason to believe that abortion in the end of Roe v. Wade will be important um, in these races. But at the end of the day, I think everyone realizes that people's ability to afford, um, you know, groceries and gas. It's, it's just, you know, it's present in people's everyday lives and it will be paramount for these elections. What about President Biden? Has he gotten involved in these races at all? Biden has not been out in Nevada to campaign for Democratic candidates there. And um, the Republican strategy has been very much to tie Democrats to Biden. Um, and so Catherine Cortez Masto and other Democrats have very much been trying to kind of campaign as their own candidate, as, um, you know, people who can make choices independent of their party and their party's leaders. And so, you know, I, I don't think they are jumping to have Joe Biden come and endorse them in the in the state. So has President Biden been somewhat of a liability for Cortez Masto? And has she been trying to distance herself from the president when she goes out in campaigns? Yeah, so I, th I think that Biden is a liability for Catherine Cortez Masto and other Democrats um, in purple states this year. And um, we've seen Cortez Masto um, really tout her record of working with Republicans on certain issues and, um, you know, her opposition to like a mining industry tax and really, you know, lean into those issues that can show she is not um, you know, someone who will just do whatever um, Democratic leaders say. And Republicans um, feel like by repeatedly tying her to the president, that that will help them this year. What about Adam Laxalt, though? I mean, you mentioned he sort of has ties to the Trump and McConnell clans. Has he gotten a boost from being associated with either Trump or just the Republican Party at large? 
So I, I would say that Laxalt's connections with Trump, you know, they were a boon for him in the primary for sure. And, you know, in some ways can help turn out um, that like MAGA base. But it is a, a liability for him as well, potentially. Cortez Masso's campaign has really been trying to focus, especially in recent weeks, on his role in promoting these false claims about the 2020 election. And um, they just last month started airing an ad really focused on um, calling him like a quote-unquote foot soldier of Trump's efforts there. Let's bring in one of the president's foot soldiers in this battle, Adam Laxalt. Adam Laxalt, the proud face of the big lie in Nevada, repeatedly pushing conspiracy theories without any real evidence. Now Laxalt says he'll try to overturn this year's election if he doesn't like the results. Adam Laxalt, always looking out for himself. And actually, after Trump um, rallied with Laxalt this weekend in Nevada, Democrats saw um, a fundraising boost. Cortez Masso said she raised like more than $1 million online, which represented like their two best online fundraising days of the year. And so um, it is a double-edged sword for him. Um, you know, he hasn't really worked to put much distance between himself and Trump, although he has, I think, very much tried to focus on issues um, independent of Trump, you know, so so in this general election phase in particular, um, you know, talking about the economy, talking about crime rather than talking about his views on the 2020 election. And where does the momentum seem to be right now? Is it more in Laxalt's camp or in Cortez Masto's camp? You've seen in recent days a number of polls that have Laxalt with a slight edge. Um, and so there there is some evidence that maybe he's he's gaining a bit of steam. Um, and earlier, I think almost all the polling I saw had Cortez Masto um, slightly leading. But at the end of the day, this is a toss-up. Both parties see it that way. You know, no one feels like they are winning the race at this point. I think they, they see it very much as, you know, we have to do everything possible until the very end to pull this off. And what is election night expected to look like in Nevada? Do you think that these races are going to be called that night? Are we already getting murmurings that there could be potential legal challenges if one candidate doesn't win? So Laxalt's, you know, actions after the 2020 election have raised a lot of questions about, you know, what would he do in future elections? Um, his campaign has said that he will accept the 2022 results. At, at the same time, Laxalt has raised the possibility of um, lawsuits around the vote. And, um, you know, Cortez Masso has said, you know, that she has full faith in the election results and, and has very much uh, made Laxalt's criticisms of elections, you know, part of her campaign. And so I think we just have to wait and see. Hannah, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Hannah Knowles is a campaign reporter for The Post. This story was produced by Charlotte Freeland. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show is mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Rena Flores. Before we go, I just wanted to say a quick thank you to all of our listeners. You've probably heard me quite a bit. I've been guest hosting a lot for the last couple of weeks while our two hosts have been out, and it's my last day filling in the host chair. And by the way, you'll be hearing some more really great guest hosts here and there. So thank you for letting me bring you my interest from politics to tech to Ye, the artist formerly known as Kanye West. I'm Arjun Singh. Our host, Elahe Zadi, will be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.